Good morning. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. I've titled our message today, Forging Friendships. And we are going to look at a very special friendship, an unlikely friendship. A friendship which instructs us in how to find a good friend, but more importantly, a friendship that instructs us in how to be a good friend. And we're going to look at what may be, in my opinion, the greatest friendship in all of Scripture. It is the friendship between two young men, a man named Jonathan and a man named David. Now, Jonathan was not just David's friend. Jonathan was David's best friend. And as a matter of fact, Jonathan's friendship to David was so important, it was so valuable that not only would David never have become king if it wasn't for Jonathan, but David might not have even lived very long if it wasn't for Jonathan. But before we get any further, let's take a look at our text. Please follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Just the other day, I took my five-year-old daughter, Lucy, to the playground. And if you have met Lucy, then you know that Lucy is a social butterfly. Lucy loves to talk, loves to talk, and she loves to make new friends. So as soon as she sets foot on that playground, she is seeking out new candidates for friendship. And I am not as social as Lucy is, I must admit. So on this particular day, I am trying to convince her to play on this empty playground on this side of the park. And Lucy is trying her best to convince me to go to this busy playground on this side of the park. And uh, her being a five-year-old girl, she won. And so we went over there, and wouldn't you know it, she walks right on that playground. She walks up to the very first little girl that she sees. She introduces herself, and they begin playing. And when we were done and we were headed back to the car, uh, Lucy said to me, she said, Dad, she said, I made a new friend today, and her name is Carolyn. And she likes to dance, and she likes to draw, and she has a dog, and she has a sister, just like me. And I said, that's great, sweetie. And I was happy for Lucy. I was genuinely happy for Lucy. Not just that she had fun, but I was also happy that she was displaying qualities that allow her to get to know others quickly. And that she realizes she can amplify her fun by including others. Now, what Lucy doesn't realize is Unfortunately, she has not made a friend. She has, however, made an acquaintance. And there's a difference. There's an important difference. An acquaintance may have the same interests as you. They may be kind to you. They may help you out from time to time. You may see them often. 
and you may get along with them quite well. But none of those things qualifies them as a true friend, at least not in the biblical definition. The Bible sets a high standard for friendship. It has to if God is going to call us friends and if we're going to be able to call him friend. In life, we make many, many acquaintances, but we do not make many friends. And don't get me wrong, acquaintances are good to have, and we can have very, very nice, healthy Christian relationships with acquaintances, but there is still a difference. A friend, a true friend, a Christian friend is elusive. You may only find a handful of them in your lifetime. And I wish it was as easy to make true friends as Lucy makes it look, but it is not. It takes hard work. It takes patience. It takes time. It takes sacrifice. It takes commitment. It takes humility. But it is worth our effort because the friends that we choose to surround ourselves with is one of the most life-influencing decisions we will make. And that's not just true for our kids and for our teenagers, although it's very important for them. It is also true for all of us, no matter what our age, because we are always developing our friendships. And if we are going to run the race of the Christian life well, if we're going to walk worthy of the calling that we have been called to, it is going to take help from others. And it will take real true, biblical friendship. So I want to show you what it takes to find the best friends and what it takes to be the best friends and what made Jonathan such a good friend to David. First, best friends give selfless love. Best friends give selfless love. Look at verse 1. It says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, if we were going to understand how these two young men so readily uh, became friends and forged this bond, first we must understand a little bit about what God had been doing in their lives prior to them meeting each other in chapter 18. David, only a few chapters ago, was just a shepherd boy keeping his father's sheep on a hillside in Bethlehem. And you know, you know the story. Samuel comes and visits the farm and anoints David as the next king of Israel out of the blue. Jesse, David's father, eventually sends him to check on his brothers while they're out fighting the Philistines. And when he arrives, David watches day after day after day as that giant Goliath mocks Israel. And day after day after day, as the Israelite soldiers fail to step up to the plate. And eventually, of course, David has seen enough. And under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he volunteers to fight Goliath. And he stood toe-to-toe with that giant. And he said in 1 Samuel 17, 45, he said, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. 
That's David. Now, while God is doing that work in the life of David, he's also working in the life of Jonathan simultaneously. And while God was preparing David's heart back on the farm, he was also preparing, preparing Jonathan's heart out on the battlefield already. And this is very, very important. Jonathan was the firstborn son of the current king of Israel, King Saul. And in Samuel chapter 14, while the Israelites are again cowering from these Philistines and King Saul's faith is fading, Jonathan's faith is growing. And in a similar fashion to David, Jonathan seizes an opportunity to display the great power of the God that he worships. And he grabs his armor bearer and he tells him in verse 6 of chapter 14, he says, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And verse 12 says, And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. So that's Jonathan. And now David and Jonathan already, when they meet in chapter 18, they have some things in common that they don't know yet. They are both roughly the same age. They are both valiant warriors who have displayed their uh, bravery on the battlefield. They are both men of action who show initiative and listen to the Holy Spirit. And most importantly, they are both men who have a tremendous a tremendous amount of faith in the God that they worship. Look again at chapter 18, verse 1. It says, As soon as he, that's David, as soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. See, in chapter 18, verse 1, David had just killed Goliath. And David, it would seem, has been called before Saul to explain himself. And David, we can only assume, is telling Saul about, about Samuel coming to the farm and about what God had been doing in his heart while he was there and about getting called to the front lines to see his brothers and about what he had witnessed, but also about the amount of faith that God had been developing in his heart during that time and about what God had been doing in his life up to that time. And Jonathan, it would appear, is present at the time that, he's, that David's telling this to Saul, and he would have heard what David is saying is to Saul. And I think that Jonathan must have been thinking, that guy's like me. That guy, David, has what I have. That guy, David, he loves the Lord like I love the Lord. C.S. Lewis once said, he said, friendship is born at the moment when one person says to another, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. And I think that that's how Jonathan must have felt. Jonathan heard David pouring out his heart to King Saul. And in that moment when he heard what God was doing in David's life and he heard the faith, David talking about the tremendous faith that he had in God, Jonathan's soul was knit to the soul of David just like that. God prepared these young men separately and then he brought them together, these men who love God. And on the common ground of faith, they forged an instantaneous bond that would last their lifetime. 
So this love that Jonathan had for David, this instantaneous bond that was forged between them, was only possible because of a mutual love that they shared for God. They were able to love each other because first and foremost, they loved God. And not only that, but verse 1 goes on to say that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. This was Christ-like love. This was unconditional love. Remember what Christ said the second greatest commandment was in Matthew 22? He said, you shall love your neighbor as, as yourself. This is more than a fondness that Jonathan has for David. This is more than a common interest that they share. Jonathan loved David as much as Jonathan loved Jonathan. And unfortunately, we are predispositioned to love ourselves more than we love others. It's a part of our natural fallen state. It's a self-preservation that results from sin. But the love that Jonathan had for David, this love was born out of faith in God. It was only possible because of the faith that he had in God. It was selfless. Later on in David's life, when Saul is trying to kill David, and David was on the run, and he was under the gun, and Jonathan meets David in the wilderness, and the two of them are desperately trying to come up with some sort of plan that would deliver David's life from the hand of King Saul. Jonathan said this to David in 1 Samuel 20, verse 4. Jonathan said, David, whatever you say, I will do for you. Whatever you say, I'll do for you. Now, how many people in your life, if you're being honest, how many people in your life do you have who would say that to you? And how many people do you have in your life who you would say that to? Oftentimes we'll hear people say, we'll say, and I've said it, if you need anything, let me know. If you need anything, give me a shout. And sometimes what they really mean, what we really mean is, if, if you need anything, let me know as long as it doesn't involve money. Or if you need anything, let me know as long as it's not on a school night. Or if you need anything, let me know as long as it's not while the Chiefs are playing. (laughs) You see, Jonathan's offer to David was unconditional. No strings attached, no fine print. David, whatever you want me to do for you, I will do it. Because I love you more than I love me. It was a selfless love. Proverbs 17, verse 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Jonathan loved David at all times. He loved him like a brother. And the bond that they shared was formed under the adversity that they endured together. David, I love you more than you love me. It was a selfless love. Best friends give selfless love. Best friends also give sacrificial loyalty. Sacrificial loyalty. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Remember now, Jonathan is the firstborn king, or the firstborn son, rather, of King Saul. Jonathan was next in line for the crown. He was the heir apparent. And he had every reason to be jealous of David. 
Jonathan was the rightful heir to the throne. And if David had not come along, it would have been his. But when he hears David explaining to Saul what God is doing in his life and everything that happened with Samuel and everything that God has been doing in his heart back on the farm and that he's been anointed as the next king of Israel, he doesn't react with envy. Jonathan doesn't react with envy. Instead, Jonathan steps aside. Jonathan recognizes what is going on here. He recognizes the hand of the Lord on David. And rather than trying to overtake David, rather than trying to beat him out for the crown, he humbles himself. And he makes a covenant with him. The covenant they made in 1 Samuel 20, verse 42, they talk about. It says, Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between you and me, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. That's the covenant that they're making in verses 3 and 4. Jonathan gives David his robe, which was a symbol of his eventual kingship. He's saying, I'm not going to be king, David. You are. And he gives him his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt. He's saying, I'm not going to be the commander-in-chief. David, you're going to be the commander-in-chief. Although I'm qualified, although I've been working hard at it, although I deserve it, it's going to be you. And he didn't do this just because he loved David. He did this because he loved the Lord and because he was listening to the Lord rather than himself. This was Christ-like humility. This was Christ-like maturity. Jonathan did not let his own desires get in the way of what God was doing in the life of his friend and in the life of Israel. And he was willing to settle for a supporting role. Jonathan didn't need the glory. He didn't need the adoration. All he needed was to know that he was doing what God was asking him to do, even if that meant stepping down so that his friend could step up. Best friends give sacrificial loyalty. Thirdly, best friends give spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership. As we read the chapters that follow chapter 18, we find that David was a better man for having Jonathan as a friend, and Jonathan was a better man for having uh, David as a friend. And 1 Samuel 23, verse 15, gives us an account of how Jonathan did this for David. Chapter 23, verse 15 says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And David, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Remember, David at this point is running for his life. He was living in the wilderness. He was lonely. He was depressed. He was discouraged. And knowing this, Jonathan risks his own life to go out and give David some encouragement to build him up. But he doesn't just give him a pep talk. It says that he strengthened his hand in God. That is what true friends do. They redirect our attention to God when it has gone elsewhere. Proverbs 27 verse 17 says, Iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. A true friend 
puts the edge on your life. They keep you sharp. They don't blunt your influence. They don't dull your spirituality. They sharpen it. One of the best things that can happen to us is to have a friend that loves God so much that just being around them makes you more mindful of who God is and makes you more mindful of God every time you, re- you leave their presence. Now, our friends don't just give spiritual leadership through encouragement. They also give spiritual leadership through confrontation, the less popular of the two. Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. When we are out of line, when we are acting foolish, when we're living in sin, a true friend loves us enough to say something about it. A handful of years ago, I was working uh, overtime at the county fair. I'd been working very long hours, overtime every day, and then security at the fair on top of that, and it was hot. It was real hot. And if that wasn't enough, I happened to be working for a supervisor at the time who had a knack for nitpicking. He had a knack for nitpicking, and he was good at it. I'm sure you know the type. And wouldn't you know it, my partner and I are patrolling the parking lots, you know, nothing's going on, um, just trying to stay in the shade, and we start getting called on the radio to do some tasks that we just really didn't feel like doing, they, some unnecessary tasks at that, and so we start walking over to where we needed to be, and I tell you what, my blood started to boil. Uh, I got madder and more and more upset, and I said, I was just so annoyed, I said to him, what is this guy's problem? Why does he have to micromanage every little thing that we do? And I said, I tell you what, I said, when we get over there, I'm going to give him an earful. I'm going to let him know exactly how I feel. And now, my partner at the time uh, was a real big guy, and uh, he was a good friend, uh, and he was a Christian. And uh, as I'm making a fool of myself, and I'm complaining to him, and I'm becoming more and more upset, um, he stops, puts his hand on my chest, He looked me right in the eye, and as serious as he could possibly be, he said, Lear, you are not going to do that because you are better than that. And if you go give that guy an earful, you're going to ruin your witness to him, and you're going to ruin my witness to him too, and I am not going to let you do that. Now that is a true friend. And I was not mad at him. He was watching out for me. And I was wrong. I was glad that he stopped me, that he reset me. Remember what Paul said to Peter in Galatians chapter 2? Do you remember that? It says, uh, but when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now that is a true friend. A true friend does not let you make a fool of yourself. And they definitely don't let you bring disrepute on the gospel of Christ. My friend corrected me because he loved me. Paul corrected Peter because Paul loved 
Peter. But more importantly, they both made those corrections because they loved God more than they loved those friendships, which is the most important part. To rebuke a friend, to correct a friend, is a sign of very, very deep love. And whether you're doing the correcting or whether you're receiving it, don't get it confused with something that it's not. Welcome the wounds. Welcome the sharpening. It is for your own good, and it is one of the main reasons that God has given you those friends. Our Lord Jesus, during his earthly ministry, kept 12 disciples. There were many people that he loved, many people that he cared for, but there were only 12 that he kept close. And even within the 12, there were three, Peter, James, and John, with whom he had an inner circle. And then even amongst those three, there was one, John, with whom our Lord was especially close and with whom he shared more than he did with the rest. So although there is nothing wrong with having many friends and having many acquaintances, it is especially important that we keep a few true Christian friends, friends with whom we share our most personal struggles and our deepest desires, friends who have unfettered and direct access to everything in our lives, friends with whom nothing is off limits. And the love, the love that Jonathan had for David, as, as great as it was, as deep as it was, it was but a mere reflection of the love that Jesus Christ has for us. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Christ loves you so much. He loves you so much. He took the punishment for your sin, and he laid down his life in your place. And after they whipped him and beat him and they spit in his face and they hung him up half naked on a cross to die in, his pla- in your place, he went willingly. He went willingly. He died for you so that you could know him, so that you could be known by him, and so that he could call you his friend. Knowing the sins that you would commit, knowing all the ways that you would mess up and transgress him, he still did it anyway. He loved you that much. His love was unconditional. In John 15, 15, Christ said, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servants do not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. If you have been let down by friends in the past, if you have been burned or hurt, I encourage you today, open yourself up to the joy of Christian friendship. Allow your Christian brothers and sisters to have access to your life. Give them access to your innermost struggles and convictions and desires. Don't hold anything back. It is a sweet, sweet communion to have. If you're searching for that kind of friendship, you can have it right here. It is available to you. God has prepared people in this church to be your friends, and more importantly, he has prepared you to be a friend to them, and they need you. The people here need you as much as you need them. And there is no place where you're going to find this type of friendship more readily than in a small group of Christians committed to Bible study and prayer. 
If you are not involved in a Sunday school class or a small group, I urge you to find one and get involved. If you've been waiting on an invitation, this is it. I'm inviting you. Please come get involved. Christian friendship is a communal effort. It takes, it takes all of us. It is something that we have to be stewards of, individually, yes, but also as a church. And we do that through Sunday school. We do it through small groups. Now, I have to say, though, that I believe I may be currently a part of what might be the greatest Sunday school class ever assembled. <laughs> and I might, be, I might be biased, but I love them. I just, I just love them. And the funny thing is, is that that class is made up of, we have a doctor. We have a guy that x-rays people's hearts or something. We've got an engineer. Um, we've got uh, several stay-at-home moms. Uh, we've got a couple cops. And outside of that Sunday school class, we never, never would have, would have met and found and found each other. We never would have. There's absolutely no way. We're too different. But in that classroom, going through life together, sharing our struggles, sharing our prayer requests, checking in on each other, getting together outside of church, studying God's word, pouring our hearts out to each other, it is a bond that is not easily broken. And it is a sweet, sweet, sweet bond. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've been let down by every person uh, that you've ever put your trust in, I assure you and I promise you that Jesus Christ will never let you down. He is never going to do it. Uh, in Deuteronomy, he said that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us and he is going to hold true to that promise. He wants to befriend you. He wants you to join him in his heavenly kingdom for all of eternity and he has created you for this very reason, and he wants to be your friend. Let's pray.